Hello, and welcome to the Tea Leaves Podcast, where we bring Asia to you through conversations with the people whose lives and work are shaping the Indo-Pacific region. President Yoon will be much more accommodating to Washington, Washington's ambition in Indo-Pacific, including Washington's views on China, Washington's views on nearby areas, South China Sea, and also getting closer to Japan, which is what Washington wants. I agree completely with that. Now, the question is, how much room does he have? For example, you know, earlier on in the campaign, he had said he would like to join the Quad. Now he's beginning to backtrack, you know, and saying, well, you know, it's a good idea. We will certainly study the possibility. So it's a different rhetoric you know, all different position once you're in actually power. I'm Rexon Yu, managing partner at the Asia Group. And I'm Shamriyan, anchor for Bloomberg Television's Daybreak Asia and Daybreak Australia. Today, we are pleased to welcome Ambassador Zhou Yun, good friend, colleague, mentor in many ways. Zhou served as U.S. Special Representative for North Korea policy from October 2016 to May of 2018 and previous to that as U.S. Ambassador to Malaysia from 2013 to 2016. And today we're lucky to work with him at the Asia Group, where he is a senior advisor. During his distinguished career in the U.S. State Department, Ambassador Yoon led efforts to normalize relations with Myanmar under the leadership of Aung San Suu Kyi and served across Northeast and Southeast Asia. Joe, let's get started. Thanks so much for joining us today. It's a real pleasure to have you. Thank you very much, uh, Rexon and Sherry. I'm happy to be here. I'm a big fan of your podcast, so very glad to be here. Well, Joe, the timing couldn't be better. We are fresh off the news of the South Korean election results, where the former prosecutor general, Yoon Suk-yeol, eked out a narrow victory to be and is now president-elect. He is the conservative candidate, a member of the People Power Party, and he defeated the liberal Democratic Party candidate, Lee Jae-myung. Perhaps just a first question on basics here, Joe. Give us your take on the election itself, the implications of the razor-thin majority, what it says about the state of politics and the mindset of the Korean people. Thank you, Rexon. This was a very exciting race. I was glued to my internet TV all evening. And really, Yoon song Yeol, by the way, he's a distant relative. But of course, my views are completely unbiased, as usual. You know, uh, uh, he won. He eked out the tiniest of margins. This was the closest race in Korean presidential history, and he won by less than 1%. You know, if I look at how Koreans voted, there are really two big factors. Uh, One is region. It still matters where you come from, whether you are from what we call Honam area, which is southwest, or Yongnam area, which is southeast. I mean, if you look at their voting patterns, it is amazing. About 80% one way, 20% the other way. In both of them, they're mirror reflections. And so, of course, the big contested area is around Seoul, which is made up of many different people from different areas. So if you can carry 
Seoul and the capital areas, you are almost there. So that's how people voted, number one factor. Second is how people voted determined how old you are. So if you are 60 plus years old, then you're going to be conservative. You remember the bad old days of, you know, communists making trouble and economy being poor and the rapid growth era. So you remember that. If you're in your, so they will vote conservative. If you're in 40s and 50s, you mostly remember protesting against the authoritarian era of Park Jong-hee, Chun Doo-hwan, and, uh, and so on. So you will vote progressive. So what was determinant was really those young people, 20s and 30s. They grew up, you know, in the era of plenty, and they don't really care that much about communism or threat from communists. So they care more about pocketbook issues. And so that's where it was largely determined. There's one more thing. Among those 20s and 30s, there was a huge difference between how men voted, how women voted. Men tended to vote for the conservative candidate, which is new, because they feel as a sex, you know, as male, they've been discriminated against. We may find that strange, and we can get into that later, uh, but that, that's a very strange development in South Korea, where young men feel they have been abused and discriminated compared to young women. But young women voted for the progressive candidate. So in the end, kind of even, really divided country, and that spells problems for governance, in my view. You know, in Korean political history, last three Korean presidents, two ended up in jail. One just got out of jail. The third one avoided jail by killing himself. So it is a very difficult life, especially for ex-president. And so the governance is made that much difficult because of lack of complete mandate. And also because the National Assembly is completely in the hands of the progressive. So President-elect Yoon has really his workout cut out and his governance will be difficult. Tell us a little bit about those big issues that really dominated the election this time when it comes to the South Korean economy. Because every time I look at a South Korean election, it seems to be income inequality, not to mention housing prices continuing to soar no matter in which administration you're in. Sherry, absolutely right. The number one issue for the voters was housing prices. Now, Moon government entered in saying, you know, housing prices, especially around the capital area, where over half people live, by the way, you know, is too high. So they tried putting on taxes on capital gains and also on higher property tax. Well, that made people who have houses angry. Your taxes have gone up. And they have protested against that by withholding sales. So supply has gone down. So that meant housing prices went up, completely contrary to the government policy. So that was one big reason uh, where most people 
who don't have house now feel they have no chance at house ownership. That was a big reason. And of course, that is very much related to income inequality between haves and have-nots. And so that was the overwhelming economic issue and people's dissatisfaction with the government at the moment is housing prices, and but the bigger picture on that is income inequality. Tell us a little bit about how that entails into perhaps the economic revival of South Korea as well, because of course, we continue to see the reopening of South Korea, restrictions being eased. How did the two candidates, Yoon Seok-yeol and Lee Jae-myung, really differ when it comes to perhaps more business-friendly policies as well? Well, you know, as it's of course usual, the conservative candidate is very much seen as a business-friendly candidate. But I would say Lee Jae-myung does not come from the main progressive line. And so he also, you know, was, of course, the governor of Gyeonggi province, which has support huge amounts of industries there. So I don't think the division there was as sharp between one pro-government, one pro, I guess, uh, welfare. But still, Lee Jae-myung has more platform on supporting, I would say, working people. And he's very famous in Korea for universal basic income, which he implemented while he was Gyeonggi governor. So he had more of ideas on how to appeal to working class and to the progressives in particular. I would say Yoon's economic platform, I mean, really, if you think about it, Yoon has no political experience. He has been prosecutor all his life. And his claim to fame is having, of course, uh, indicted President Park Park-geun-hye. And after that, getting into massive fights with a Moon government. So he was seen as a crime fighter, not necessarily crime as we would think about it, but political crime fighter. And, and so that, I think, for me at least, I really don't know where he stands on some of the basic, most basic economic issues, as well as foreign policy issues. That's where I was going to go, because he never sought public office before actually running for the top job of the country, right? So he's also a foreign policy novice. Does that concern you in any way, given that obviously, as we have the election campaign going on, as always, North Korea was making a lot of noise? It does concern me that he has so little political experience that he was essentially brought in by the conservatives because he happened to be popular in fighting political uh, shenanigans, crimes, and whatever. I mean, to me, the analogy might be it is as if uh, Comey became popular, you know, and said, listen, There's a guy who's going to go against Trump. Let's have him, you know. Uh, So it's a little odd in that. And, you know, one fear is that he will now go after people, especially former Moon officials, Moon Jae-in himself, to consolidate his own position once he gets in because governance proves to be so difficult. You know, I was in Korea when... President Lee, Lee Myung-bak, got elected. 
And of course, he had to consolidate his position. The previous progressive had just, you know, been, uh, and he committed suicide and he had, uh, he'd been out. And, you know, I was working at U.S. Embassy at that time. Nightly, there were anti-Lee protests. And do you know what the issue was then? It was over beef. The FTA was there covering those protests. I remember that very clearly. And so Koreans can be very difficult people. Nobody really comes out in support of, we love the government, but they will come out in, you know, protesting. And that beef crisis almost brought down the government. And that was amazing. And so this governance issue and people protesting, you know, I kind of think President Yoon will face very similar problems. And there is question of, can he govern effectively? Joe, let me ask you, how do you assess the top advisors around Yoon that he has used in the campaign and and individuals we might expect to see on his Blue House team or in senior jobs in the cabinet? What do they look like? Do they give you reassurance? Do they contribute to your concern? Well, number one, they're a little older than the previous lot. So it's reassuring, at least for me, you know. But beyond that, I mean, as we just discussed, because Yoon is pretty much of a blank sheet as far as substantive policy is concerned, his advisors become that much more important in my view. So, so far, he has been listening to traditional conservative advisors, people like, for example, Park Jin uh, on foreign policy, Kim Sung-han on foreign policy. And those two are well-known to us, to American diplomats, as well as well-known outside. And so current betting is that Kim Sung-han, who used to be vice foreign minister, but also a quite a prominent scholar of U.S.-Korean relations in Korea University, he will be the national security advisor. That's the kind of what I'm hearing. And Park Jin, who was, you know, in the government for a long time, he started as a diplomat, but he turned to politics, that he will be foreign minister. So those are very steady hands. Uh, And then on defense side, I'm sure he will have a former general as Minister of Defense. And so they are all steady hands. Now, what worries me is that if domestic situation becomes very difficult to govern, typically presidents turn to foreign policy because that's easier to manage. They have much more leverage much more authority in foreign and security policy. So, you know, when he then tells the professionals too much of his own ideas, which may be good, which may be not, there is a bit of a risk. Yeah. Maybe if we can pivot to foreign policy, because a big agenda and obviously key for the United States, is start with North Korea, And you have experience managing U.S.-South Korea relations, but you've also dealt extensively directly with North Koreans over the years, Joe. What's your anticipation on initial 
framing perspective for Yoon uh, once he's sworn in in May regarding North Korea, what the posture he would take? And then second, how should we think about what North Korea will do in reaction to this election outcome? North Koreans, even if I say so myself, are a strange lot, you know. And so, so much depends on North Korean attitude towards South Korean president. And I have no doubt North Koreans wanted a progressive president. They work a lot easier with a progressive president. And the key difference in South Korea between progressive president and the conservative president is they both want to engage North Korea. But progressives are willing to kind of swallow humiliation, give more money, while conservatives are less willing to do that. You know, and that's a, to me, it's a key difference. So you've seen President Moon, despite North Koreans saying, you know, hey, we don't want to talk to you. We don't want to talk to you. Why don't you go away? You know, we only want to talk with the U.S. Despite that, President Moon just saying, we still want to talk and so on. Now, conservatives at certain point will get sick of that and say, you don't want to talk? All right makes no difference to us, and they will adopt a tough line. Now, as far as President-elect Yoon is concerned, he has already adopted a very tough attitude towards North Korea, which is the traditional conservative position, you know, which is one, you got to agree to denuclearization. If you don't do that, we have nothing for you. So in that sense, he's a lot closer to traditional Washington position. So I really don't see this cycle ending up well. To me, it's going to end up with a provocation. And then we're back to bad old days. What concerns me about something you said earlier as well is that if domestic politics is not going well, then presidents tend to turn to foreign policy because they have more authority there. Then that sort of implies that we could see a more aggressive stance uh, towards North Korea, which we've already seen with Yoon Seok-yeol talking about backing the potential option of a preemptive strike against North Korea, but also South Korea's positioning against China. We saw in the Moon Jae-in administration, they've been a little bit more careful about not really, about towing the line with China. But we've already heard from Yoon that he would still agree to more deployments of the THAAD missile system. So do you expect friction there too if things don't go as well as planned in the domestic side of things? Yeah, I think this is where what we talked about, risks of Yoon playing foreign policy, security policy for domestic political gains comes into play. I'm sure if he left to people you know, who are steeped in all these issues, they'll be much more cautious. I mean, let's be realistic. For South Korea to bring in another batch of that is completely unrealistic, you know? It's not going to go down well with anyone. I would, you know, if I was in, in the State Department or in the government now, I would say, hey, hold on, you know, don't rush it too much. It's unrealistic. So he needs to tone down his rhetoric. Joe, related to these questions, let me ask you, there's clearly an expectation among some that President-elect Yoon will shift away from a sort of balancing approach 
to the United States and China that we have seen in some respects with President Moon and to be prepared to be a, a bit more squarely working with us on a number of initiatives and a little less reticent to take positions or to adopt policies that might raise some friction in Beijing. Do you agree with that? I agree completely that in terms of his policy outlook, President Yoon will be much more accommodating to Washington, Washington's ambition in Indo-Pacific, including Washington's views on China, Washington's views on nearby areas, South China Sea, and also getting closer to Japan, which is what Washington wants. I agree completely with that. Now, the question is, how much room does he have? For example, you know, earlier on in the campaign, he had said he would like to join the Quad. Now he's beginning to backtrack, you know, and saying, well, you know, it's a good idea. We will certainly study the possibility. So it's a different rhetoric, you know, or a different position once you're in actually power. You know, earlier on, he had said he would like to see at least tactical nuclear weapons deployed. You know, that's a non-starter again. And so we need to kind of go through what is realistic, what is not realistic. But what is realistic is sympathetic. He's much more sympathetic on Washington's views on China. But still, the reality of South Korea is that they need to balance the two, Beijing and Washington, and they have to survive through that balance. Joe, there's a, a real interest. You mentioned the prospect of better relations with Japan. And you know, there was a push last year to see what was possible. And I think the, the political calendars just didn't align. I tend to see that if you look at 2022 and the second half, there's a window for the possibility of a real push facilitated by the United States to try to address some of the issues that have been the real friction points between Seoul and Tokyo and the notion of, of the three leaders to getting together later this fall, I don't think is out of the question. Would you prioritize this if you were back in government trying to broker or facilitate this kind of arrangement between our two allies and aim for that kind of ambitious objective towards the end of this year? I would definitely aim for that. I think that for Washington should be the highest political agenda, improving relations. But it's got to be done very subtly, you know. And so last time there was any significant improvement between Seoul and Tokyo was in 2015 over the Comfort Women Agreement. And that was pretty much very well subtly, you know, developed by Washington in conjunction with the two. But we have to understand, of course, there are limits to especially South Korean side. So, so it's got to be done slowly. But I think there is now a really a unique opportunity. Prime Minister Kishida in Tokyo was foreign minister when actually this 2015 Comfort Women Agreement was worked out. And so there is an opportunity. 
And what we must do in from Washington is how to make the improvement sustainable. And so don't go for really high flying items, but slowly build up trust between the two. Yeah, I think just last night, uh, first thing in the morning in Asian time, Prime Minister Kishida was saying that he was hoping for unhealthy. Japan-South Korea ties are key for peace and prosperity. But I wonder when we're talking about Washington sort of setting the bridge and helping the relationship just become a bit warmer, how big of a priority is that for the Biden administration right now? Because I'm willing to bet that they want that. But at the same time, they have so much on their table already, including dealing with Russia's invasion of Ukraine. I think, Sherry, you know, obviously at very high levels, whether you're President Biden or Tony Blinken or Jake Sullivan, you are consumed with Ukraine. But uh, we do have, you know, several competent people below that level who are able to work these things. And I think actually the timing with everyone consumed with Ukraine, you know, for people like Dan Crittenbrink, or Kurt Campbell, or even a little bit above that, uh, this may be an opportunity to work with them. You know, I'm sure Kurt's not so involved with Ukraine, you know, uh, and so, and same with Dan. So for them, they are the ones who have to push this. And so I do think this is an opportunity. And remember that I would say the highest goal of the Biden foreign policy is bringing together solid alliance relationships, you know, and the weakness in Seoul and Tokyo relationship has been debilitating over the last five, 10 years. And so this to me should be the center, but quiet center, you know, not so much, you know, publicity brought in part of our Indo-Pacific policy. Yeah, I mean, it seems to me, Joe, that, you know, your point about Yoon kind of pulling back slightly related to his view of South Korea's role with the Quad, there's an interrelationship between how we might envision South Korea interacting with the Quad or with Quad initiatives and finding a more healthy South Korea-Japan relationship. The two impact each other. And so I share your hope for this fall. And I think it may, frankly, help open up opportunity in how South Korea can participate, if not in the Quad formally, at least in the near term, then in initiatives that the Quad is pursuing, for example, in technology. Yeah, I would imagine South Korea can and have uh, participated in what we call Quad plus, there would be the plus element, you know, with countries like Vietnam, Singapore, and so on, on technology issues, on COVID, global health issues, on climate issues. And I think that should be enough. Uh, and and really formally join Quad, you know, one, you got to change the name to Quad to Sank. And so I, I, I would say it should be enough that they participate. and But we ought to concentrate more on basics of alliance diplomacy, you know? 
Ambassador Yoon, tell us a little bit about South Korea's role when it comes to the Russian invasion of Ukraine, especially as it pertains to perhaps the stance on North Korea as well. Sure, it's a very interesting debate that's happening, you know, in in South Korea right now on what the whole Ukraine situation means for Korean Peninsula. So for North Korea, of course, it makes denuclearization that much more difficult. You know, Ukraine gave up nuclear weapons in 1994. In fact, Ukraine signed what's called Budapest Memorandum with US, UK, and Russia, saying that these three countries would guarantee security of Ukraine if they gave up nuclear weapons. So for North Korea, they're saying, listen, see what's happening to Ukraine? If we give up nuclear weapons, that will be us. So it makes it that much more difficult. Now, for South Korea, there is an added problem because one of the scenarios that we always talk about for North Korea is a collapse of North Korea. You know, if there is a military coup or revolution, then the assumption is that South Koreans and U.S. would go up to kind of unify the country. But Ukraine example shows that it could be taken over by China, become part of China. And so this has also kind of revved up anti-Chinese sentiment. And especially because these sentiments have been kind of going up for a while. During the Winter Olympics, I don't know whether you saw it, apparently Chinese showed all the ethnic groups within China and one of the minority groups was Korean. So Koreans are saying, we're not a minority, we are our own country. And so there is big issues, divisions concerning Ukraine. For the conservative candidate who just won the election, he's saying, look at Ukraine. We have to rely on strong deterrence, more defense, while the progressive one saying, look at Ukraine. We better be nice to China, you know? When we talk about South Korea's foreign policy, not surprisingly, we very much focus on South Korea, Washington, South Korea, Tokyo, as well as Beijing. Are there any other relationships that you think would help this new administration if they prioritize, if they strengthened during the next five years? My experience is that South Korean kind of foreign policy, security policy, is dominated by number one, North Korea. I mean, that's just a all-consuming issue. And then secondarily, ambitions of China. And obviously, then thirdly, Japan. So that's a, I don't think they have space to look way beyond the region. So for them, that plus U.S., which is a guarantor of South Korean security, really defines, uh, frames South Korean foreign policy. Now, to be a partner of the U.S., and we've insisted that they help us out, for example, in Southeast Asia, in ASEAN regions, they help us out in value diplomacy, democracy, human rights, and the South Koreans have consistently done that. Look at their position in Ukraine, or their position in Myanmar, 
although they don't really care about those issues, they will come along, you know. Same thing with uh, humanitarian assistance and so on. But their bread and butter issues are really regional. And so for them, for, for the United States, I think they will work with us as member, as, as a friend, as an alliance partner on South China Sea issues, Myanmar issues, Ukraine issues, and so on, climate issues. But what they will insist is that they have a say on North Korea policy issues. Joe, it's terrific to welcome you back to the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today for a timely and very substantive conversation as we look and anticipate what the future holds for the next South Korean administration. Thank you again. Thank you. Very good being with you. We really appreciated your insights. And thank you to our listeners. Please be sure to rate and follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also access the full video of our conversation on the Asia Group's YouTube page. We'll see you next time on Tea Leaves.